Hello, welcome to episode 166 The Debt Camel. Hey, Money Clan, a very warm welcome to the Chain of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Dennis O'Brien. And I'm Katie Welsh. So, Katie, a really cool conversation we had today, diving all into debt in the UK. Yeah, it's definitely much more different than I thought it would have been because when I think of the UK, I don't think that their lifestyle and their daily routines are very different from ours in right. America. Yeah, no, it was definitely fascinating hearing like how things are so different. But also there's a lot of stuff that's the same. And, you know, I think a lot of people forget that the basics are pretty much the same anywhere that you are. Right. So whether you're in the UK or in the US, this is still going to be a very relevant conversation for you. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, before we dive right in, if you guys haven't already, we'd love if you joined our Facebook group. Head on over to chainofwealth.com slash group. We'd love if you joined us and come and tell us what you're busy working on. All right, Kate, you ready to dive into our episode? Yeah. Fantastic. Let's do it. Welcome to Chain of Wealth. Here's your host, Dennis, inspiring you to begin your journey of financial freedom. Sarah Williams is a debt advisor in London, England. She set up her personal website, Debt Camel, five years ago, wanting to provide good information about debt in a more approachable, easy-to-read manner than official debt advice websites. She now blogs about everything, from debt to credit ratings in England, from improving your credit score for a mortgage to asking for a payday loan refund for affordable and affordable lending. Her aim is to answer common questions with as little jargon as possible. Welcome, Welcome. Sarah. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so glad that you were able to make it on the show. So the first question that I have for you, here in the U.S., student loan debt is such a problem for people. I was wondering if that is the same kind of struggle that millennials in the UK are dealing with? Or what is the big struggle that millennials are dealing with over in the UK? Okay. Student loan debt didn't used to be a problem in Britain at all. Back in the days when I went to university, we all got grants. We didn't have to pay any fees at all. So about 20 years ago, the loans started coming in. And then about 10 years ago, they got much larger with sort of uh, £9,000 a year basic tuition fees. So that would be, what, $12,000. And that was a big, big shock for everybody concerned. It's mitigated to some extent in that these loans, your repayments are linked to your ability to repay. So there's an argument that really it's just a sort of complicated way of adding extra income tax onto people who get a degree and therefore should be earning lots more money at the end. So at some point, they actually get written off if you haven't repaid them by a certain amount. So debt advisors are quite divided about this. Some people say you shouldn't really treat them as a debt you should worry about. You know, they'll just get deducted from your income. And if you can't afford to pay in the end, they all get written off. And other people like me say that I think they actually put off a lot of people from backgrounds where going to university isn't the norm, from actually deciding to go to university and take on what looks like a huge, huge chunk of debt. That's very off-putting to some people, and I don't think that's right. I think we should be encouraging wider participation in going to university. And I also think because so many more people are going to university now, 
when I went back to university decades ago, there really was a premium on being a graduate. You did get a much better income if you were a graduate. Now, with a very large proportion of people going to university, it's more like you can't do some jobs if you haven't been to university. But there are so many, there isn't really that huge premium anymore. And, and it looks quite odd, really, to say that, you know, you're earning so much more money and therefore you should pay so much more tax. But it's not something we tend to worry about as debt advisors, because if somebody hasn't got any income to pay it, they're probably not going to be paying it at all. They're outside of insolvency procedures. So if you go bankrupt, um, your student loans still still carry on. And they don't tend to get sold to unpleasant debt collectors or anything. So in a way, it's quite a civilized form of debt. But also, I think it's quite off-putting to a lot of people. And that's not what you want when you're trying to decide whether to go to university when you're 18 or not. Thank you for answering. It sounds like it is quite similar to what people in the States are going through. I always hear other countries saying that they don't have the student loan problem that we have here. So I, I was like, ooh, this is my chance to really ask somebody, like, are other people struggling with the same problem? I think it's growing because, because it only really started coming in about 10 years ago. It's very much affecting people who are in their 20s at the moment. And most of the people in sort of 30s and upwards don't have that as a problem. And there's big generational problems anyway across society at the moment that it tends to be that people tend to have more wealth. Um, a lot of the jobs available to the millennials tend to be more insecure. And it's generally much harder if you're a millennial. You've kind of got student loan debt on top of this as an extra added factor. So people are saying, well, you know, there's no way I can save up for a mortgage I'm trapped renting. Yeah, it's, it's definitely as sort of seems like a little bit of a spiral that people can get themselves into. Which sort of leads perfectly to what my next question is. I wanted to ask you, what is a debt management plan and how does that work? Okay. What a debt advisor does when somebody comes in and says they're struggling is you do the common sense things. You know, you get a list of their debts, great starting point, um, a list of their income and a list of their expenses. So you take away the expenses from the income and you're left with what uh, debt advisors call disposable income. And then you look at what the minimum payments to all your debts are supposed to be next month. And if your minimum income is more than those payments, then you're into what we would call snowballing. You know, you, you can manage. Um, obviously, you're struggling. So it's a question of how you can manage better, perhaps by reducing the interest rate on some of your debts, perhaps by cutting down some of your expenses, increase your income, all these sort of sensible financial blogging ideas, debt advisors also talk about. But if you can't manage that basic minimum payments each month, and that's only paying the minimum payments to credit cards, which mean you're carrying on paying these credit cards for a very long time. Um, at that point, you need some form of what we would call a debt solution. If you could pay the debts if interest wasn't being added, that's where a debt management plan comes in. It goes to your creditors and says, we can't afford to pay the debts. This is my income. This is my expenditure. These are all my debts. I'd like to offer you £40 a month instead of 
75 or 120 or whatever the payment should be and ask you to freeze the interest and charges on my debt. So all the money starts paying off the balance, which sounds great. It does affect your credit rating. It's going on your credit rating as a payment arrangement or possibly a default if you're paying a very low amount. So that's the downside is it harms your credit rating. But if you've built up more debt than you can manage or, I mean, perhaps you're perfectly fine with this amount of debt, but then, um, you know, your income dropped or your expenses changed for some reason and you now can't afford it. A debt management plan is a very good option. It's very flexible because if your income or expenditure changes again in a few months time, you can go back and adjust the amount. It sounds like a really good thing. And, you know, I understand that obviously you should only be looking at this if you're in such a position that you can't really make your minimum payments. But I also think that it sort of is the best of both worlds for both parties. It's saying, well, yes, I acknowledge that I've made this problem. You're going to have a a bad mark on my credit score. But however, I'm still trying to pay back the debt that I have borrowed, even though even though there's no interest. That's right. Yeah, they're not trying to walk away from the debt. I mean, you're not trying any form of insolvency or debt write-offs. Most people who've borrowed the money say they want to repay it. And it sort of fits in with quite a good emotional need that people want to do the right thing. It's just they can't manage with the amount of interest that's being added on. So people can do it themselves. They can approach their creditors and suggest it to each individual creditor. Or they can go to, we've got several big debt management firms in Britain. You can go to one of those. They will set up a plan for you and you just make one payment a month to the debt management company and they divide that up between your creditors pro rata uh, by the amount of debt they've got. So that's a bit like a very large sort of consolidation loan. That's a nice way to, to you are struggling and it's a nice way to kind of find your footing and start working in the right direction. It is. And because it's flexible, it works really well if your problems are temporary. So if you've just got a short term problem because you've got you know, a couple of children under the age of five, so you've got very high childcare costs, but you know you'll be all right in a few years' time. This allows you to cope, manage for the next few years before you can get back to actually full-scale debt repayments. The problem comes when you're actually paying back so little, it's going to take you 40 years to pay back the debt management plan. It gets to a point where if it goes on for too long, then it's more realistic actually to look at more drastic options, insolvency options, or if you've got a house, perhaps selling the house and using some of the equity to pay off the debts. Okay. Well, speaking of equity and debt and all that, a while ago, I had a car with a ton of negative equity. It was a whole like trying to figure out how I was going to get rid of it and pay off the negative equity and everything. And I've heard that it works quite differently in the UK. Uh, What are some of the things that you can do if you're given a car loan that is completely unaffordable? Okay. There's It's an increasing problem in Britain. I mean, if you go back 10 years or so, some cars were bought on what we call higher purchase, which was basically a secured loan against the car. But what's come in in the last 10 years as being actually the normal way to buy a car in Britain 
is uh, what is called um, PCP, personal contract purchases, which are a form of higher purchase. But with the higher purchase, you basically pay off the loan over four years or five years. And at the end of that, you own the car. With a PCP, they're normally three years or four years. And at the end of that, there's a large balloon payment at the end. And if you make that payment, then yes, you own the car and you go on. You don't have to make any payments in future. Um, But a lot of people don't save up to make that payment. So they have to return the car and then they they, they don't have a car and they then get another car on PCP again. And the problems with this are, first of all, there can be a problem with negative equity accumulating through a series of chain of these. Not normally if you go right to the end of the contract, but if you try to stop a contract after two years, say, you know, perhaps you've had another child and you just want a bigger car, um, you can terminate a contract early and swap it to being a different one. But then you're taking over negative equity into the um, into the new contract. And then it's quite hard to actually pay it off by the time that one gets to the end. And the other problem is this really traps people into buying a new car every three years. Motor manufacturers have found a great way to make people keep paying for the first high depreciation in the first three years, time after time. And it looks quite friendly because, you know, the actual monthly payments don't look too big. But all you're doing effectively is you're leasing this car. You're not buying it at all. So people don't really appreciate, I think, quite how much they're being conned into keeping buying and paying for that first high three years depreciation on the car price. But there are some protections which are written into British law for higher purchase contracts that once you've paid half of the amount of credit in the total contract, you can just hand back the car and not pay any more. So if there is negative equity involved, that's sometimes a good option. It depends how much the car's worth, whether it's worthwhile taking it to the end and selling the car. And But if there's a lot of neg- negative equity involved, it can be better to do what's called voluntarily terminate the contract, hand it back and just say, that's the end. This is written into your contract that you're allowed to do this so it doesn't harm your credit record. It is a formal option. It's not one the motor manufacturers like. It is in quite small print. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, like it's absolutely crazy how leasing has become such a popular way of financing cars. And like you said earlier, you know, it's really that initial massive amount of depreciation that cars typically have and sort of making consumers bear the brunt of that. That's right. It's essentially a, a loan that looks affordable, but you're not actually getting the car at the end of the day. And I think if people don't really understand that difference, it's very easy to fall into that trap. Yeah. I mean, if you look over your lifetime, so, you know, you're not just looking at how do I get a nice car for the next three years. Cars are a complete money pit. And the way to spend the most on cars is to change your car every three years. Um, if you can buy a nice, reliable model and keep it for, well, I kept my last one for 14 years. And my partner kept his last car for 20 years. Um, it works out much, much cheaper in the end. Yes, definitely. So I have one more question about that now. Mm-hmm. You're speaking about the large balloon payment at the end for like a modest, regular everyday car, a Honda or a Toyota or something like that. What would that large balloon payment look like? It would be um, 
it, I mean, you know, Hondas vary from quite small cars to quite large cars. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you can easily be looking at a balloon payment um, of 5, 10, 15, 20 K, no, $20,000. Oh, wow. So they can be very large. Um, and certainly, you know, um, $10,000 is not uncommon as a, okay. a balloon payment at the end. Yeah, I wasn't sure if a large payment was like $900 or... No, 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 no. These are the sort where, you know, if you really have to be determined right from the start to save up okay, to be able to afford those. Or, of course, I mean, it's quite a, a mad world, actually, car finance at the moment. When I bought my last car, I bought it on a PCP. I didn't really want credit at all. I walked in with the cash to be able to buy the car. But they said, oh, if you sign up to this PCP deal, it's 0% interest and we'll give you £500 off. So I was in the, okay, I'll sign up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in that situation, obviously, I just I got to the end last year and, and I paid the whole lot off and the car is now mine. Um, but that's quite a small percentage of people actually do that. Congratulations. Crazy. It is crazy, yes. Something to do with incentives to sell cars, I assume. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, they have to meet their quotas. <laughs> so another debt hole people quite commonly fall into is when they start using payday loans. Um, a situation that's quite common is that people, someone will take out a payday loan and then yep. when they have to pay it back, they end up having to take out more debt that's right. to sort of finance that. So do you have any solutions or suggestions for people that are stuck in this position that they keep borrowing money to repay their old loans? Mm. Well, this is, was a huge problem in Britain up to um, when the new regulator took over in 2014, 2015. As you say, you know, your, your washing machine's broken or your car needs a service, you don't have the money. So you think, oh, I'll just get the payday loan. The interest rate is ridiculous, but, you know, it's, it's for such a short period, the actual interest amount doesn't look dreadful. But the thing is, when you get to your next payday, if you pay the whole lot back then, you're then short for the rest of the month. So you end up rolling the loan or taking out another loan a few days later or sometimes even the same day. So debt advisors would see people who had borrowed every month for years from a payday lender. And these loans are supposed to be short-term loans, and that's how they justify the high interest rate, that there's an overhead on giving any loan out, and because you've only got it over a month, you know, obviously the interest rate's going to be really high. But these people were being trapped into debt going on. So what happened when the regulator changed in 2014-15 was they brought in some new legislation. First of all, they actually capped the amount of interest that could be charged. Payday loans in this country, we actually charge a lot more interest, I think, than payday loans in the States. So it was about 4,000% APR. Oh, wow. Yes. And that's now been brought down to a mere 1,500% APR. What? That's insane. Well, if you look at the percentage, that is quite a bit. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. But what, what was really important was that the uh, regulator then said you couldn't charge more in interest and extra charges than the actual amount you borrowed. So if somebody borrowed 100, then they couldn't pay more than 200 back overall. And what this means is if they couldn't actually pay it back at the end of the first month and and they had to ask for a payment arrangement, they couldn't carry on being charged interest 
for very long. It could carry on for another two or three weeks, but then they would hit the payday loan cap. And from that point on, you didn't get the situation you would get before where you borrowed 100 and you just didn't pay it. You just defaulted because you couldn't repay it and it got sold to a debt collector and you looked at it a few years later and it had gone up to 850 or something. Um, that's now not possible because of the payday loan cap that's been brought in. So that's one situation which has really helped. Um, it's got rid of a lot of the complete cowboys from the market. But the other thing which is helping, which um, is something I helped to bring in, is the idea that it's, there always has been something in the regulator's rules before the current regulator, the previous regulator had it as well, which says that a lender has to check whether a loan is affordable for you. And their definition of affordable is you have to be able to repay it from your income without hardship and without having to borrow again, which rules out an awful lot of payday loans. Now, this was never enforced by the regulator before. But we've got a mechanism in Britain called the Financial Ombudsman. So you can put in a complaint to the lender saying they didn't check properly on your affordability. And you can ask for a refund of the interest you paid. And if the lender says no, you can send it to the Financial Ombudsman to look at your case. So the Financial Ombudsman says it's fair that you borrowed the 100, you should repay the 100. But it's not fair if they didn't check properly on affordability that the firm should be able to make extremely large profits off this lending. It's all developed over the last three or four years. And now the financial ombudsman's got what I think is a very good way of looking at it. It looks at what's fair to the borrower and it also looks at what's fair to the lender. So at the start, if you're just borrowing this 100, it might not be very obvious to the lender that you can't afford it. They're not expected to ask you to produce bank statements. And, you know, it's not, it's not like applying for a mortgage. You don't have to go through an incredibly detailed application if you only want to borrow £100. Um, but what the regulator says, if you keep borrowing, you know, so three months later, you're actually now borrowing 200 not 100 And a couple of months later, you're still borrowing 200 So you kept borrowing for five months in a row then the lender should be saying, mm, I don't think that my loan's actually doing this person any good. Perhaps there's something about their situation. I don't know. Perhaps 100 isn't actually affordable at all. Perhaps they've got a gambling habit. Um, perhaps they've got a lot of higher expenses than I would have thought somebody would have. And in that case, the lender should either stop lending or they should ask you for more information and, and proof that you actually can afford it. And People are getting very large refunds where they haven't done this in the past. People are getting back hundreds, thousands of dollars. I've seen biggest case people getting back £20,000. Oh, wow. That's huge. <laughs> yes, just from one lender. Well, it's definitely good that they are trying to make it more fair. I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think so. I mean, I think the whole concept of affordability is a very useful test. It's not just for payday loans as well. It applies to a lot of other um, of the higher cost credit end of the spectrum. Um, you know, you can get uh, loans for larger amounts of money over you know, two or three years. And 
some of those can be quite high interest rates attached if you've got bad credit. But the lender should still be checking that you can actually afford that. And there where you're borrowing two or three thousand pounds over two or three years, you're talking about a much more significant monthly payment over a really sustained period. So there they should be doing good checks right at the start for the first loan, not like the payday loans. You can say, well, it's only a hundred. You know, you don't really have to do a lot of detailed checks on your first loan. It's only if they keep borrowing that you have to do it. But for the higher cost credit, um, the lenders should be looking more closely at the start, I think, than some of them actually are at the moment. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. MoneyCloud, we're just going to take a quick break and then we'll dive right back into the value link round. If you guys are looking for a long-term retirement plan and you are a little bit hands-on and want to get your hands dirty, look into what a QRP is. If you head over to chainofwealth.com slash QRP, you'll get a free book sent to you and you can really learn about qualified retirement plans and how you can structure your money. This is a US thing. So I know this episode has been a lot of UK as well. But if you're on the US, chainofwealth.com slash QRP and you can check out Damien's resource. Okay, so what are some of the steps that you would take if you were starting to set up a new sound retirement plan? A lot of the pension planning in Britain is orientated around your job. Um, So employers tend to have pension plans which are linked to what you earn. Some of them are what we call defined benefit schemes. So you will actually get a proportion of what you earn when you retire. Some of them are defined contributions. So it's, you know, you save a certain amount of money per month and that's, you know, like a money purchase pension. And if you then move off to a different employer, you've got this pot in pension pot you can take with you. So the government's been very keen to get more people enrolled in pension planning and it's brought in what I think is been one of the government's big money success stories. I'm saying success is certainly going in the right direction. It's not yet at the success level. So it's brought in what was called auto-enrolment four or five years ago now. So this started off really small that you're only contributing, say, 1% of your income each month and your employer would match that and they'd put in 1%. And then after a couple of years, that went up to 2%. And then this month, this April, we've now had the big jump up where people who are in auto-enrollment are now contributing 5% of their income each month and their employer is adding another 3%. And the government actually pays you back the tax on that. So you're effectively contributing it. You get back the tax on your money putting in. Um, So the government's putting in some money as well. So that's about 8% going in every month. It depends how old you are, obviously. If you're in your 20s, it's a very good start towards getting pension plans set up. Um, If you're already in your 50s, it's not going to add up to a huge amount by the time you retire. But the auto-enrollment now is its the assumption that people will be paying into this scheme. You can opt out of it if you want, but it's a huge difference, psychological difference between choosing to opt in and choosing to opt out. And particularly for people in their 20s and 30s, where there are so many other calls on your salary, it's made a really big difference. The 
big, big take up of people now having a pension for the first time. That's really good. And I think, you know, just that it's automatically happened and you have to opt out changes the whole landscape. And it really does force people to be a little bit more conscious about saving and planning for the future and stuff like that. It does, yes. I'm quite very interested in the sort of psychology of what makes it easy for people to take the right financial decisions because, of course, advertisers and and lenders are all really working at the psychology to get us to take decisions which make profits for them. But it's equally important that we should try and think about how we can encourage people to make sensible financial decisions themselves. Totally agree. So do you have a favorite personal finance book that you like to recommend? Um, not really. I, don't, I mean, I don't tend to recommend people buy books. It doesn't seem like the obvious choice for... Uh, I'm very much looking at the debt end of the spectrum. Right, yeah. and most people are in <laughs> debt. I'm going to go out and buy a book on the subject. I mean, a lot of... I mean, this is why I ended up starting my website is because... If you write a book, it's out of date straight away. That's true. <laughs> um, something's changed. So um, the website is the perfect answer to being able to provide, you know, updated information. So when the, these changes to the pension contributions came in this month, I just did a quick trawl back through my blogs and I saw, oh, yes, there were about five blogs where I'd actually mentioned um, auto enrollment and the pension contribution. So I just nipped into those and changed it so they were up to date. And it works much better than than books. So I, I yeah, I, I don't really recommend books. Okay. Well, do you have a favorite quote you try to live by? A favorite quote? Um, the quote that I really like, and I think it works well for not just financial matters, but also for a lot of things like, you know, ecology and do things right for our children, is a quote from a British politician back in the 18th century who said, nobody ever made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Some people just say, it's not worth me trying to save. I'm never going to be able to save for, to buy a house, look at my rent. It's impossible. If you don't start saving, you're never, ever going to get there. Just start off, you know, you may not end up with the best pension ever, but if you don't start putting any money aside into your pension, that's not a good idea. And on saving the planet and things, if we all just use a little bit less electricity, overall, it's going to add up in time. Yeah, that's very true. Sarah, we've absolutely loved hanging out today. Do you have any other last parting piece of advice for our listeners? And then we'll say goodbye. In a way, I'd quite like to know more about what happens in America, but it is quite different. So I'm always worried about um, that, you know, some Americans turn up on my blog and they read something and think, oh, we'll do that. And then they find out it doesn't actually apply over there. The rules do seem to be surprisingly different um, for what seem like quite similar situations for things like payday loans and students' loans and things as we've been talking. And um, it's quite mysterious and it's not really very helpful. It would be more use in a way if we had more of a common approach, but that's a long way in the future. That's true. (laughs) Most definitely. And I think with people like moving around a lot and, you know, just the whole world really getting smaller, Mm. it is crazy how different 
countries and regions handle things so differently. And, yeah. you know, like maybe one day we'll move to sort of like a global way of doing stuff from a money perspective. But like you say, at this point, we're very far away from that. <laughs> it's quite a long way off. Yeah. But the basics of budgeting, snowballing, income maximization, they're the same everywhere. Yeah, no, for sure. Money Clan, we've been here with Sarah Williams from Dead Camel. You can check out her website. It's deadcamel.com. And if you are in debt, definitely check it out. It's a fantastic resource. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.